Well, we have seen the Word, we have touched the Word, we have heard the Word, we have tasted the Word, and I just want us to open our Bibles, if you have a Bible with you, if you have a phone that's got a Bible on it, I encourage you to turn to, or tap to, John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Going to read a long passage together. Uh, the incident of the woman at the well, which is 42 verses long. Um, but I wanted to make sure I read this whole passage together. I'm not going to get an opportunity to touch on every uh, minutia of this passage, but I wanted you to hear it before we look at it a little bit deeper. John chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John although Jesus himself didn't baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. And so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her and said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty and have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or... Why are you talking with her? 
So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have no food. I have food to eat that you do not know about. And so the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for which you did not labor, that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Our Father, we thank you for your holy word once again. Lord, we thank you that it is life and truth for us. And Lord, we thank you that we can learn from this incident in the life of our Lord where he met this woman of Samaria at a well. Lord, we thank you for what it teaches us, and we thank you for the results of what happened here, that there was a revival in in a whole town. Lord, we pray that that might happen where we live, that people might truly understand who you are, and that they might come to you in faith. And so, Lord, we ask that as we look into this passage, that your spirit would be at work, um, helping us to understand and to see, helping us to understand even those things that we um, don't have the time today to explain from this passage. Lord, we pray that you would press the truth of these words into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever felt like you don't belong? Felt like you weren't part of the crowd, like you were different? Remember that Sesame Street song, right? One of these things, not like the other. One of these things just isn't the same. I can think of a few times in my life where I felt like that, like I didn't quite fit in uh, with the rest of the crowd. The Sesame Street always just sort of had objects, but maybe there's a time when you haven't felt like you were part of a whole crowd. There's one time I remember not fitting in when I was a long time ago, before I was married, when I was on a team of young people that spent one summer um, traveling from church to church in the United States uh, doing vacation Bible schools. We would They'd sort of fly us in or, or bring us in. We were on a van, and, and uh, they would just supply uh, the workers, but we would actually um, teach the curriculum. Um, and we did that to a number, a number of different churches a week at a time for a whole summer. But we had seven people on our team, and I was the one Canadian. Uh, we all got along real well, and it was a fantastic uh, summer of ministry. I still keep in touch with some of those people today. But my American team members took every opportunity to let me know that I was not like them. Uh, Whether it was me asking for vinegar with my French fries, 
uh, which they made fun of the whole trip, or the fact that I did not put salt on my watermelon. Ever hear about a funny thing like that? They did that, and I was the only one that didn't. Or, of course, my accent. Every time I'd say about, I would get mocked. But they would make sure that I knew that I was different, that I was not like them. I was from another, another country, and I was different than the other six. Well, this morning we want to look at a section of the Gospel of John about, a, about this woman who was different. This woman who was from another culture, from a different kind of people. This incident has a lot of little sub-themes in it. And we could talk about uh, all those things. You might have been thinking, oh, as I was reading the middle of that section there in verse 23 and 24, oh, it's going to be a great sermon. We can talk about worship. Well, I'm not going to do that today. That's one of the sub-themes that was in there. There's another one in, in a section that I'm not going to talk about at all, hardly, in verses uh, 31, 38. The fields are white unto harvest. This could be a great message on missions. But really, I think, I won't explain this later, I think when he's saying the fields are white into the harvest, I think they, uh, the disciples were seeing all the people from the village coming and dressed in white, and I think that's what that was talking about that in, in that instant. But this passage here, and this is what I want to talk about a little bit, this, this passage definitely shows again, uh, it shows the glory of the Son of God, but I want to look at how Jesus talked to this outsider about how uh, she needed to come to know God. Main characters in this section are Jesus, of course, and the woman, and later the disciples and the villagers enter the scene as well. But in this one dialogue, Jesus leads a woman, an outcast woman, to come to know God. She lead, he leads her to salvation. And we find Jesus here in the southern province of Judea. He's, he's starting to become popular among the common people there in Israel, but he's also starting to get popular among people that were in opposition to him. He started to feel some heat from the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And so he decides that he needs to get out of there and go up north to Galilee. But verse 4 tells us, geographically speaking, that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. That region, Samaria, was right in between Judea and Galilee. Judea is to the south, Galilee is to the north. And the most direct route, of course, would be to go right through Samaria. Made sense. But, verse 9 says, that Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. In fact, when Orthodox Jews would travel between Judea and Galilee, they would totally avoid Samaria. And I was going to put an illustration here about when I used to um, go to school in Edmonton, go to college, and I'd travel to my home and had to go through Saskatchewan and was tempted many times to go around, but I don't want to say anything about that because now Saskatchewan is one of the in-provinces, and we have some people that are moving to Saskatchewan, so I don't want to unnecessarily offend anyone. But there was a road that went around Samaria to the east that they would normally use. It was a way longer route, but the Jews thought if they'd go through Samaria, they might get infected, or they might touch something that was unclean. Even walking along the, the path through Samaria would be unclean. They'd, they'd get contaminated. And so Jesus and his, his disciples, going through Samaria was highly irregular, especially for someone who was a Jewish rabbi. When it says in verse 4 that Jesus had to pass through Samaria, well, in a practical sense, he really didn't have to. He could have traveled the other road. 
but he had to because of something greater, because it was God's will. It was a divine necessity. It wasn't necessarily a practical necessity. Jesus had to pass through Samaria because he was about to meet up with a woman who was in need of salvation. God's sovereignty was at work here, as it is all the time. This was reason enough to go through a place that was seen as hostile. But these cultural and racial hostilities didn't matter to Jesus. Rather than be like the Jewish teachers of his day and take the long way around this Samaritan territory, Jesus intentionally wants to encounter these diverse and typically rejected people of his day. He went through Samaria right in the middle of the day. Like I said, it was a God-ordained necessity. He was obeying his Father. And he really wanted to show that God loves the world. As we read about in John three sixteen, Not just Israel. Not just a certain group of people. Let me just paint this scene a little bit. Jacob's well was located at the bottom of a valley. Uh, and the town of Sychar was about a 45-minute walk up a hill. It says that Jesus and his disciples got to the well at the sixth hour, which uh, in the Jewish way of counting, where they would start counting at sunrise, and being close to the equator didn't vary as much as it does here. It usually started at 6 a.m., so this was around noon. And they're all hot and hungry and tired, including Jesus. Verse 6 says that he's weary as well, and so he sends his disciples ahead to a town to, to go and get some food. But he stays, and he just sits down at a well. But while Jesus is sitting there, a woman comes from the town to go and get some water. And this is when she happens to meet Jesus. To this woman, Jesus is a complete stranger. She notices, uh, probably by the way he's dressed, that he is a Jew, uh, but figures that she's just going to go about her business. And so she's startled when this stranger to her says, give me a drink. But this is the start of the dialogue between Jesus and this woman at the well. And I think we can learn a number of things here about Jesus, uh, about how Jesus acted towards this known sinner and social outcast of society, of that society, of Jewish society in particular. First, notice that Jesus was willing to initiate contact with someone uh, outside of uh, cultural convention or cultural expectations. I said before that Samaritans and Jews were not on good terms. And Jesus led his disciples right through a region that was filled with people that were rejected by the Jewish people, both spiritually and culturally. Why? Well, the animosities went way back for seven or eight centuries. When Assyria took over the northern part of Israel in 722 B.C., they exiled most of the Jews out of the area. And they actually then repopulated that area with foreigners. So the, most of Israel's out, a bunch of foreigners get shipped in, and you can read about that in 2 Kings 17. But there are, are a few remaining Jews there, and then some people from other places. And eventually these two groups started to intermarry, which according to Jewish laws was strictly verboten. It wasn't allowed. And so to the Jews... The, Samar or the Samaritans were seen by them as sort of a half-breed kind of people. And because of that, they were seen as unclean. And they were despised, even this many centuries later. 
And so there's hostility and a very deeply ingrained prejudice between the Jews and these half-breed Samaritans. And yet, what does Jesus do? Jesus totally disregards these differences. He was willing to go where no good religious Jew would dare to go, outside of what might be expected. He would speak to someone that didn't belong. He would speak to someone from the world. But Jesus challenges us here to go to people that might not be like us or might maybe not share an affinity with us. Are you willing to go outside into the world to talk to people about spiritual truth, truth that they desperately need to hear? Are you willing to come into contact with someone who might be a little bit different than you? Maybe someone who doesn't believe the same way you do. It might be risky. It might even seem awkward. It might seem inconvenient. We need to remember here that people's eternal destiny is at stake. Just like Jesus came for you, Jesus wants to bring others to himself as well. And Jesus gives us some help here on how to initiate, how to practically initiate those kinds of conversations with people who, like this lady, were, we could describe her as just being indifferent to the gospel. And helps us to know what to expect when we do get into those kinds of conversations. Look at the start of this conversation. He starts it by saying, give me a drink. He, he met this woman in her normal course of activities. And he initiated the conversation by finding here a common point of interest. They were both at the well to get water. And since Jesus didn't have any way of getting water from, from our vantage point, uh, he makes a request from the woman, much to her surprise. But really, we know the rest of this com- from the rest of the conversation that, that Jesus is doing this very intentionally. The fact that Jesus even talked to her totally shocked this woman. She notices he's a Jew, and and no Jew would dare associate with a woman, let alone a Samaritan woman, let alone a Samaritan woman who had a terrible reputation. As we'll see, having had five husbands and living with another man outside of marriage covenant. But Jesus' request obligated her to respond. And this was the start of a conversation. One that would eventually turn her life upside down. It all started, though, with Jesus making a point of contact. He initiated this, the discussion on something that would have been on her mind. Give me some water. When we want to get someone into a conversation about Jesus and the gospel, we usually have to initiate it. Maybe once in a while... You know, someone might come up to us and say, tell me about Jesus. Now that's ideal, right? And then we can share the gospel. We've got an in right there. But that is not normal. Usually you're going to have to start something, uh, especially with people like this woman who don't really pay attention to Christ, who, 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 who don't care one way or the other if they know Jesus. They're just indifferent. Jesus isn't a part of their lives or their interests. At those times, you you might have to figure out a way to start a conversation that will move people into spiritual things. Think about that when you meet people. How how can I steer a conversation into things about Jesus? 
when the woman was surprised that Jesus would make a request like that, Jesus starts then to circle in on her real need. Did you notice? Basically, he says in verse 10, if you really understood who I am and what I've come to do, you wouldn't be surprised by my question. If you knew the gift of God, he says, and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. He's saying, if you ask me for it, it's yours. All you need to do is ask. Same sort of thing he said to Nicodemus back in the beginning of chapter 3. The lady came looking for a necessity for physical life, for this water. That's why she came. But Jesus was offering the necessity for not physical life, but for eternal life. Throughout the whole conversation, though, this lady is slow to understand. Even though she's starting to figure out that there's uh, some kind of spiritual angle that Jesus is playing here, she wonders out loud how Jesus could possibly give her water without having any kind of bucket. And besides that, how can he stand next to Jacob's well and tell me he's got living water? Well, if we know the rest of the conversations in John, earlier in John, later in John, Jesus uses these sort of natural things to begin spiritual conversations. But, uh, but she has no clue at this point. If he wants me to drink from Jacob's well, he's, she's thinking, then he must think he's greater than Jacob is. And in the Samaritan way of thinking, there was no man greater than Jacob. So she's thinking something like, if this water was good enough for Jacob, it's good enough for me. Now the Samaritans, they only regarded the, the first five books of the Bible as the word of God, and so Jacob was the greatest. They didn't know or, or give heed much to David, uh, the, the, the greater king. Jacob was their guy. He's the one that was the father of the 12 tribes, and, uh, and he was the greatest in their way of thinking. So she's saying, if this water is good enough for him, then it's good enough for me. Jesus answers her reply then about being greater than Jacob by saying that the water he's offering has permanent value. Verse 13, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I'll give him will never be thirsty again. If you drink the water from this well, you'll, you'll be back for more. But the water that I'm offering is permanent. It'll permanently satisfy your thirst. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Samaritan. It's available to you. You can have it. Eternal life is yours. That is the offer. Here it helps to understand a little bit about the difference between a well and a spring. Uh, Jesus talks at the end of verse 14 about a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I know a lot of you live on farms or acreages where you're dependent on a well for your water supply. Uh, well water is water that just sort of sits there under the ground. It's, it's waiting to be drawn up. Well, a spring has water that flows. It, it moves. It comes up on its own. And it keeps coming. That living water that Jesus offers is like that. It keeps coming. The woman had come to a well, and Jesus was inviting her to a spring. Jesus is promising, he's offering a spring of living water to anyone who will come to him. And this spring will be eternal. It will be permanent. That's what Jesus was offering the woman at the well. That's what he offers us. He wants us to have that lasting, satisfying, uh, living water that springing fountain of eternal life. Well, the woman at the well still doesn't get it. She takes Jesus' words literally and says, sure, that sounds good to me. I'll take your water. It'll save me a 45-minute walk up here every day. But Jesus keeps at it. He's patient, but he also knows that it's not enough to arouse her interest and to offer her the gift of God. That's not enough. 
she still needs to deal with her sin. This is an important part of our conversation with people. Everyone that comes to Jesus for salvation needs at some point to come to grips with the fact that they are a sinner. We, we have to see our need for a Savior before we come to the Savior. We have to see our need for saving before we can come to receive the gift of salvation. All of us have to admit our sinfulness. No one can see God without seeing himself or herself as a sinner. John MacArthur, very insightfully, I think, says it this way. He says, if you evangelize purely on the basis of all the gifts of God, you know, things like God will make your life better, or God loves you just the way you are, that sort of thing. MacArthur says, if you evangelize purely on the gifts of God, everybody signs up. Everybody signs up. And then he says, you might well have yourself a false convert. It's critically essential, he says, to bring the sinner to face the guilt and feel the weight of divine judgment. To be measured against the holy law of God. To be told of the consequence of that sin. So look again at how Jesus does that. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands. The one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman says to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And I think that this is the turning point for this woman. I think at this point, she comes to a place of conviction. She realizes that she's a sinner. She confesses Jesus as a prophet. He knows everything about her, she, she finds out. But notice how she goes then right back to thinking that she needs to do something. Look at the very next verse, verse, verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She really here goes back to the religious differences between Samaritans and Jews in terms of where they worship. She seemingly has repented, and now she wants to connect with God. And she still thinks she needs to connect with God through a certain way, through a certain place in which to worship him. She still thinks religion is about doing something. This is a common instinct for us as humans. We think we need to do something to earn God's favor. Even as believers, we sometimes can fall into that ditch on one end. But Jesus shatters that by saying it's not about that. That place where you think you need to connect with God is, uh, is going to be gone. Not too far down the road from this. It's going to be destroyed. He says worship is an internal thing. It's not an external thing. I love how he says it there in verse 21. He says, believe me. I love those words. He's saying, you know, she's got repentance already, but she doesn't have faith yet. Believe me. And then down in verse 23, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Now we could go into a long um, sidetrack here about what worship really is, but when it comes down to it, worship is a salvation issue. Only people who are saved can truly worship. He says that the place that you worship isn't ultimately important. It's who you worship and how you worship that's important. It's loving God and obeying God and serving God from inside, from the heart. It's not outward observances or places. That's how we connect with God. 
It's a heart that wants to obey and serve and worship him. Well, the woman responds by saying she'll wait for the Messiah to make everything clear. And that's when Jesus closes the deal. He goes to the heart of the issue and says, I'm here, I've come. I who speak to you am he. This was the point of the story. Jesus is revealed to this woman as the Messiah. And the woman immediately realizes who Jesus is. She leaves her water jar and she goes to tell other people then about Jesus, a natural response for someone who's just been saved. The fact that she left her water jar is significant. Don't miss it. It tells us that she's accepted the living water that Jesus has offered. She, she had come for the a specific purpose of getting water and, and then she leaves though having received the living water that leads to eternal life. So she doesn't need the water jar anymore. It's really amazing that Jesus chose a Samaritan woman to be the first, people, first person to reveal that he is the Messiah. He made a revelation to a stranger that he could not seemingly make to his own people yet. This was the one time that he revealed that he was Messiah prior to his trial. And he did it to the most unlikely of people in that culture. She was a Samaritan. She had a bad reputation. She was an outcast. And she was a woman. When the disciples came back from getting food, you notice that they weren't surprised that he was talking to a Samaritan, but they were surprised that he was talking to a woman and that he was talking to her in public. The rabbis back in those days actually had a saying that went like this, let no man talk to a woman in the street. No, not even with his own wife. But Jesus did away with all that and revealed to this outcast, to this woman, that he was the Messiah. God brought a child home to himself and it came from a conversation at a well. Jesus, as the Messiah, showed that we need to cross paths with different and indifferent people. And look at the results. This simple conversation with one woman at the well leads to a citywide revival. The impact is simple and clear. Skip down to verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. This lonely woman returned to town so convicted and so convinced and so changed and so transformed that all the people in the town were changed and transformed. The living water that Jesus talked about went from Jesus to a woman to a whole village. We need to remember that Jesus is not just the savior of a certain kind of people from a certain religion or from a certain group of people that look and act a certain way. Look at what the people of the town say in verse 42. We know that this man is really the savior of the world. Not the savior of just the Jews. He's the savior of the world. Maybe you're here today and are in the same position as the woman at the well. Maybe you came here indifferent about the things of God. Maybe you even feel like an outcast. You feel unaccepted, different. Well, Jesus comes to you today just like he came to that woman. Through this story, through this word, he has initiated contact with you this morning. Maybe you've seen the gift of God. You've been confronted with your, your sins. I encourage you to respond in repentance and faith. Or maybe you're here and you do fit in. You, you come to church, you, you worship regularly, you're a fairly good person during the week. You may even give to the food bank. 
You know, support the Cancer Foundation, the Kidney Foundation. And you think that that's the way to connect with God and to make sure you get to heaven. You know, just as a side note here, I know it's getting late for some of you, but I was saddened this week, death of Muhammad Ali. Hear one person speaking of him and, and talking about his uh, conversion to Islam. And, and then later throughout his life, he's, he's now um, being honored as a person of goodwill. And, and he, he told this, I think it was his manager or something like that, that uh, he, he said, you know, as long as you do more good works than bad works, you'll be okay with God, and that's why he does these good works. Well, I pray that um, Muhammad Ali came to some realization later in his life. Uh, I know there's lots of people that witness to him and give him tracts and all sorts of things that I've heard lately as well. But how sad to think that our good works are going to, uh, if we, our good works outweigh our bad works, that we're going to have some sort of a, a standing with God. No, we need Christ alone to save us. But if you're like that, if, you've, if that's the way you've been thinking, that, um, that the way to connect with God and make sure you get to heaven is to do those good things, maybe now you see for the first time that you've been trying to quench your thirst with the wrong things. You know you need something lasting. Well, here's Jesus speaking to you today. He's not at a well. He's here at Wetaskiwin Mission Church through his word to you that are here for this service on June 5th, 2016, and Jesus is here offering you that living water, that overflowing spring that lasts forever and comes with the promise of eternal life. Why not admit your sin, turn from it, and drink of that living water? But finally, if you are a Christian and you want to know how to share the gospel with people around you, especially people that might be indifferent to Jesus, this encounter between Jesus and the woman at the well gives us a pattern, I think, of making contact and offering living water that gives eternal life. Are you willing to turn everyday contact, people that you meet, into opportunities for God? Jesus was willing to make contact with people outside of what people thought was conventional. Who are those people for you? They may be the outcasts of society. They may be people whose skin color is different than yours. They might be people from a different religion. They might be your co-workers who think that, you, that, that they're so far outside Christianity that they could never believe. You might think that, that, that they're too far away. Why would they ever believe? They're too indifferent. It might be the guy or girl that sits beside you in your class at school. Your next-door neighbor might be the outsider. Are you willing, like Jesus, to step outside those barriers? Will you initiate contact in spite of those obstacles? We should all be glad that Jesus wasn't just the savior of a certain group of people. You and I can call ourselves his children, Christians, because Jesus was the savior of the world. We were outcasts. We were outside the promises. We were without hope in the world. But now, people in the world, people around you, are thirsty as well. Some might not even know it yet. Some you need to come to them and then they'll realize that they're thirsty. But they need to be introduced to this Savior. Will you follow the example of Jesus? Are you willing to come into contact with people around you who are literally dying of thirst? Will you make contact with someone and take the initiative and offer them that living water? Let's bow together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, 
We thank you that when Jesus gave the great commission, he, where he tells us to go, to make disciples, to teach them, and to baptize them, that says at the end of that, and lo, I am with you to the end of the age. Lord, we thank you that we are not on our own when we think about this task of making disciples. Thank you that you are with us. Lord, we thank you that you still reveal yourself to people, and you still do it in surprising and unconventional ways to surprising and maybe um, unexpected and unexpecting people. But God, remember, we remember that we were once those kind of people as well. You sent Jesus to us, and you did that while we were yet sinners. You gave us that living water that uh, welled up to eternal life. And so we know that if you did that for us, you can still do that for others. You might put people into our paths with whom we can share the source of living water, namely Jesus himself. Pray that we would be mindful of those people, that you would call them to mind for us, and that we would initiate those kinds of conversations, that we would point them to the gift of God, that they might come under conviction of sin, that they would respond then in repentance and faith. Help us to be persistent. Help us to be courageous. Help us to be unashamed. And help us to be faithful in pointing people to your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.